0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks, as you know, if you've tuned into them previously, are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during this work-from-home period with some of the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conference series, the SALT Conference in which we aim to provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are ideas that are shaping the future, as well as interesting stories. And we're very excited to welcome Daniel Okrant today to Salt Talks. Uh, Daniel is the prize-winning author of six fantastic books on a very diverse set of topics. In fact, um, Publishers Weekly called him one of our most interesting and eclectic writers of nonfiction over the last 25 years. His most recent book, which was published in May of 2019, is called The Guarded Gate, and it's a story about bigotry, eugenics, and the law that kept two generations of Jews, Italians, and other European immigrants out of America. So it's a, it's a story mainly about, it started about eugenics and morphed into a book more broadly about immigration. I know Anthony um, and Daniel will talk at length about that book as well as some of his previous books. And prior to, to The Guarded Gate, uh, Daniel published The Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Uh, in 2011, uh, which was cited by the American Historical Association as the year's best book on American history. Uh, Prior to that, uh, he wrote The Great Fortune, uh, which is the epic of of Rockefeller Center, talking about all the inner workings of how Rockefeller Center got built. That book was a finalist for the 2004 Pulitzer Prize in history. Among his many jobs in publishing, uh, Daniel was the corporate editor-at-large of Time, Inc., and he was also the first public editor of the New York Times. Uh, Daniel served on the board of Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery for 12 years, including a four-year term from 2003 to 2007 as the chairman, and he remains a board member of the Skyscraper Museum and the Authors Guild. Uh, Daniel's a native of Detroit and a graduate of the University of Michigan. Go Blue! He now lives half the year in New York on the Upper West Side and the other half on Cape Cod uh, with his wife, which where he's currently residing right now. Uh, They have two children that are grown, and his wife is also a a well-known poet. A reminder to our audience that if you have any questions for Daniel during today's Salt Talk, you can post them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, uh, to conduct today's interview. Uh, Daniel, it's great
1: to have you on. The first thing I have to do is I think give a shout out to Saul Gittleman, the uh, former <laughs> professor from Tufts, who watches these Salt Talks. So Saul, we're waving to you. I I, uh, I got your book from Saul. I went up to see him. Uh, he's living up in, uh, I guess it's the uh, Winchester area in an assisted living place with his wife, Robin. And he mentioned your book to me about a, a year ago, eight, maybe eight, nine months ago. I read the book and obviously then reached out to you. I thought it was one of the more fascinating books that I've read about that genre of time in American history, 1915 to 1935. Learned a lot about that book. My Italian grandparents were immigrating, uh, my grandmother and my two grandmothers and one of my grandfathers, 1921, and I'm sorry, yeah, 1921, 1923, respectively. And then my dad's uh, father was actually born here in the United States in 1895. So he had a little bit different experience in the immigration. So, uh, but before we go into that book and your other books, I would love you to tell our listeners and viewers how you became a writer. What was it about your personal background that guided you in that direction uh, from
2: your your time in college? Well, to tell the truth, I can take it back before my time in college. First, thank you, Anthony, for inviting me to do this. It's a pleasure to be here. And hi, Saul. How are you? Um, when I was seven years old, my father's oldest friend, um, who was a uh, uh, involved in politics and, and to some degree journalism, was kind of a godfather to me. And he urged me to write a letter to the editor to the Detroit News, our local newspaper. And he said, If you want to get it published, be sure to begin with, I am seven years old, but I have this opinion. So I wrote this, signed it, and it was appeared in the paper three days later. And I saw my name there, said underneath it, Danny, is that what it's called? Danny Oakrint. And I said, my God, my name's in the paper. I'm going to be a writer. It really goes back as far as that. But I got, I got serious about it when I was in college doing journalism. Then I worked in the book publishing business. And when you're an editor in the book publishing business, what you really want to do sometimes is be on the other side of the desk. And after nine years in book publishing, I switched and I decided I'll try to be a writer, which meant four or five years of barely making uh, mortgage payments. But then it worked out.
1: Well, and then you went on to just become a, a, an author. I mean, you're a phenomenal uh, nonfiction author. And so you converted from journalism, which is a tough enough job, into actually writing books, which I know is a super tough job. So when did you make that
2: transition? Well, my, I first, when I, when I began writing, I took the advice of a friend who said, if you want to make it as a freelance writer, you better have a subject that you're really good at. So people will come to you to write about that subject. And the thing that I knew better than anything else was baseball, so I became a baseball writer, and I did pretty well. I was published a lot, Esquire magazine, Sports Illustrated, and I did a couple of books about baseball. But again, following that friend's advice, once you've established yourself on your subject, you can then switch to any subject you wish because you've shown that you can make it as a writer. So around uh, 1990, 95, when I was in my 40s, I was working as a magazine editor, but thinking about leaving, making that change, and and turning full time to writing, which I finally did in 1998.
1: Daniel, what is your team? Which is, is it, Detroit Tigers or
2: who no, the Chicago Cubs?
1: Chicago Cubs. All right, well there you go. Well, congratulations, you finally got one. That's that's, that's awesome. Finally, yeah. You're also the George Washington of the modern rotisserie scoring <laughs> system for fantasy baseball. So a lot of people don't know that about you as well, which is equally fascinating. ahead. I interrupt you. I didn't mean to, but I just wanted to hear. Who, who,
2: I'm a huge no, thing. no, 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 not, not at all. Right. Um, I, I just found that w- when, when our kids were graduating from high school, uh, the opportunity to have the freedom to live where we want and to make my own schedule really played into my long-term wish to write for a living. So I left the magazine business in 2001, but I had begun working on the Rockefeller Center book, Great Fortune, about na- in 1997, I think. So I date, I date my career. Why that though, Daniel? Why did you pick that subject? Well, again, I don't have a good reason. I have a silly reason. Uh, it was somebody else's idea. Um, it, it, I was called by a, by a publisher, my new slightly. We had lunch. It was a very nice lunch. It was back in the days when I actually have a drink at lunch. And Beautiful afternoon in, in, a, in an outdoor, uh, in, in a garden behind a restaurant in the village. Uh, and I said to her, you know, I'm really not looking for a book to write. I've got this job. and other, She said, well, I want you to write a history of Rockefeller Center. And I said, it's a deal. My agent, who was sitting at the table, said, "You never should do such a thing." Um, when I was the editor of Life magazine, and when I was corporate editor at large at Time Inc., my office looked at Rockefeller Center. I was at the in the Time and Life building at Sixth Avenue and 50th Street on the West Side, and I saw that place and walked through it every day, and I loved it for a variety of reasons. So, the opportunity to learn more about it and have somebody pay me to do that was something I couldn't pass up.
1: And boy, I thought that was a phenomenal book. I read your books in reverse order. And I read The Guarded Gate, then The Last Call, and then I found somebody had mentioned to me that you you had written the book on Rockefeller Center. I thought that that book was amazing. Let's touch on Rockefeller Center for a second because it almost didn't happen, as we both know, based on your book. And yet, this was a phenomenal experiment by John D. Rockefeller Jr. Tell us a little bit about the idea behind Rockefeller Center and what it means to the city of New York?
2: Well, it was an accident. John D. Rockefeller Jr., who had never done anything resembling uh, property development, um, but was an extremely generous philanthropist, even beyond his father. Really, his entire career was philanthropy. Um, He acquired a ground lease to the land that is now Rockefeller Center from Columbia University so that the Metropolitan Opera Company could build an opera house there. And then the opera company, as they're preparing to build an opera house, suddenly the uh, um, the market crashes in 1929, and they go to Rockefeller and say, well, we can't really afford it, even though these were some of the richest people in New York, so would you build the opera house as well? And he said, no, it was at that moment I decided I could either work for them or I could work for myself, and I decided to do it alone. And he had this 99-year lease on three blocks of Midtown Manhattan, that absolutely had become worth almost nothing, but he was committed to it and he had deep enough pockets that he could stick with it.
1: It's an amazing story. So he built this beautiful complex and uh, he put a lot of people to work in that complex. And obviously, as we both know, it's the real heartbeat of Midtown Manhattan. Right. And tie- he, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna tie it back to the book for one second. It's, mm-hmm. it's insight here. Um, but it, it it didn't look like it was gonna be successful in the beginning, right? I mean it looked like he it had it was a
2: calamity plus it yeah. was the depression. It was yeah. the depression, and the only way they could get people to move into it, there were they were the primary means of acquiring tenants. First, everything that the Rockefellers were involved in. Standard Oil, of New Jersey moved into it, Rockefeller <laughs> Foundation moved into it. That you know, everything that had the name Rockefeller Connected moved in. So that occupied about 1% of the space. And then they made deals with anybody who wanted to get the contract to yep. build the place had to commit to a lease as well. So I'm trying to decide between Westinghouse and Otis for the elevators, which one is going to take up the most space in my building. Westinghouse said, we'll do it. We ha- Then he signs signs up Westinghouse. I should say, it's not John D. Rockefeller Jr. himself, as you know, but a man named John R. Todd, Christy Todd Whitman's grandfather, yep. who really was the genius who did the work. He was the real developer. It's an amazing story. And also, David Sarnoff, the
1: legendary David Sarnoff, uh, takes 30 rock for the Radio Corporation of America, which goes on to become NBC. And if you walk those storied halls, which I have because I've done television there, you can hear the voices of Howdy Doody and Captain Kangaroo (laughs) and Johnny Carson and and Jack Parr. And so, uh, well, that's an amazing book. I want to recommend it to, to people that are listening, but I want to transition back to your latest book. I think it's very timely given the election coming up. And, it, and it, it's called yep. The Guarded Gate. And it is about uh, immigration. And boy, I thought we were having a tough time with immigration in 2015 to 2020 until I read your book, Daniel, and recognized that it was probably worse, 1915 to 1935, considerably worse. So let's, let's talk about eugenics and that false science of eugenics. And let's talk about where the zeitgeist of America was uh, at the time of the guarded gate.
2: Well, the, the movement to keep out immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe begins in 1896. Um, and a piece of legislation is passed that would pre- require a literacy test uh, for people coming into the country. And it was clear to the people who wrote that, in fact, they listed the, the countries, that people from these countries were less likely to be literate and we could keep them out that way. But that was vetoed that bill in, in 1897 by Grover Cleveland. It was passed again under William Howard Taft, vetoed again, passed again early in Wilson's tenure, vetoed again. And then finally in 1917, there were enough votes to override another Wilson veto because they had changed, the anti-immigrants had changed the story. After being accused of, of racial and religious ethnic prejudice, they came upon this nonsense science called eugenics. Uh, eugenics begins in in the United kingdom in the in the in the aftermath of darwin uh it's a distortion of Darwin, but even then the idea of matching up you know the, the best women and the best men to marry each other you know that they might produce uh better babies as as the the term uh, was used throughout this period for uh, contested state fairs uh, but what the anti immigrationists did is they decided to apply it to ethnic groups so the 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 lead publicist for this movement was a new yorker named madison grant who wrote a book published in 1915 uh, called the passing of the great race and he posited that there were three european races and they were a hierarchy that at the very top were the nordics who were bold and and strong and confident and smart and they should run the world and they're the people from scandinavia and from the british isles then there are the alpines from france and austria Uh, And you know they're artisans, and we need them in our culture. And at the very bottom are the Mediterraneans, the Italians, and the Greeks and the Turks. Uh, And he actually writes at one point in the book. He said, as we now know from the work from the science of eugenics, which wasn't science, uh, any intermarriage between any of these two groups, the offspring will revert to the lower form. Therefore, if a Nordic marries an Alpine, their children will be Alpines. Alpine marries a Mediterranean their children will be Mediterraneans, and if, and if any of the three European groups marries a Jew, their children will be Jews. And this is horrifying thought, published by our leading publishing companies and embraced by, by two generations of American politicians. And, and so let, let's go to the culture. Uh, what were they fearing? Well,
1: uh,
2: uh, to, to take a term from today, displacement. They were fearing displacement. I think that the, 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 first, the first fear is just the fear of the unknown. But this goes back, Anthony, as far as, you know, the, the, before the, the republic is born. In the 1750s, there was a newspaper editor in Philadelphia who was writing uh, screeds about keeping the Germans out of Pennsylvania because we, they're going to destroy our culture and our language. That was Benjamin Franklin who wrote that. So it really, really goes back. It comes up every couple of generations in America that there's this sudden fear that the next guy coming up the ladder is going to ruin things for those of us who have already made it.
1: So in your opinion, the anti-immigrant sentiment today, is it worse? How is it different? Is it uh, under, is, there's a displacement issue? Clearly, that's why I brought that up. Uh, how would you describe today versus 85, 90 years
2: ago, or 100? Well, the, there, I think there's there's a very strong similarity, uh, which is to say that we are not deciding whom to allow into the country based on that person's quality as an individual. We're doing it on the basis of the of where they come from, what ethnic group they belong belong to. So just as Italians, Greeks, Romanians, Poles, Jews, they were the ones who were use the expression of a well-known politician in America from the shithole countries of the, of the day. Now, the same thing is being applied to people from uh, Arab nations and from uh, Central and, 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 and South America, Central, Central America and Mexico. If you're deciding to keep somebody out because they're from Honduras, that's like keeping somebody out because they're from Italy rather than, do I want this person in the country? And that, so it's very, very similar.
1: No, I thought, I thought that was a fascinating, uh, you know, part of the book where, you know, and I, I'm interested in your reaction because, you know, Frank, uh, Teddy Roosevelt wrote legislation saying that Italians for immigration purposes were to be treated as non-Caucasian. I remember my grandfather being sore about that. Uh, Jews and Italians were considered back then non-white. I think we've gotten whiter over the last hundred years, you know, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, and And so I guess my, my, can you talk a little bit about that evolution of the expanding definition of whiteness in the United States?
2: Well, it's a matter of, of familiarity, uh, and it's a shame that we have to use a color to define it, uh, but in fact, you're right. That's how, how it was determined at the time. Um, the notion that somebody is beneath you on the ladder begins to fall apart when that person climbs up the ladder and is succeeding. So as we saw Italians and Greeks and Eastern European Jews make it in American society, the question is, are they pulling up the ladder so that nobody else can come behind them? Or are they extending the ladder because they're glad that they've made it? And they've made it in the eyes of the people who would have rather keep them out because they've gotten educated and they've worked hard and they've become good American citizens. Uh, It's really not any more complicated than that. Um, There's an American
1: history book uh, called These Truths. Uh, by uh, Lepore, Joe Lepore, mm-hmm. and she's also a Tufts grad. Uh, that's another book that Saul recommended me. Did you read that book or not? Yes, I did. I did. I know Jill quite well. Yeah. Okay, so so I want to synthesize these books. I'm going to ask you an opinion now because I'm going to intersect the two books because her book is really about the truth of what happened in America. Uh, we we get a story in social studies about America's greatness, and obviously we both love America. I can tell from your writing that you love America as much as I do. But we also know that there's an underbelly of America. There's a seething in America. There's a uh, uh, this discontent in America. And so my question to you, has that always been the case in America? Is it worse now? Is it, is it better now? Or how can we make it better?
2: Um, Do you- I don't know that it's any worse. I don't know uh, it's any worse now than it, than it has been in the past. Because the same principles are operative, in which one is trying to find up to come up with excuses, not just to demean the lower group, but in the process to uh, exalt the group you belong to. Uh, It seems that we as a species, Anthony, need to have somebody to look down on. I don't know why that is the case. I think it's probably more toxic today because of the communications culture that we have, so that we can see in an instant uh, the nature of the hatred that exists. You know, some people say, has this president has he made this a country that has more haters in it, more anti-Catholics, anti-Semites, anti-Black? I said, no, I don't think he has. He's just given them the opportunity to come out of the closet. And in a world of, of Facebook and, and Twitter, it's very easy for bile and poison uh, to pour into the culture at large. Well, we, we, we took the village idiot and we turned him into a global idiot Uh,
1: through the use of this social media. They can sit in their basements and they have this huge uh, microphone now to speak to the rest of us. You know, one one of the, I mean, you know, not to go into politics, I try to stay away from politics on these talks, but one of the reasons why I disavowed my relationship with the president and, and no longer gave him my support had to do with this story because he told four Congresswomen, also known as the squad, to go back to the countries that they originally came from. Three of which were born here in the United States. One was a naturalized citizen, all four democratically elected to our Congress. And so, you know, they told my grandparents that. They said, go back to the country you came from. You write about it. You write about the Nina movement for the Irish and the Italians. You know, no Italians or Irish need apply in these storefronts. My grandmother was subjected to that. And so uh, I want to ask you this question We're still subjecting people to this. Is there. A patacea. Is there something that we, your book is clearly something for intellectuals to read and they become more aware of this and become more psychologically minded of it. But I'm just talking about from the social construction, Daniel, based on your life experience, is there anything that we can do to make
2: this better? Or is this a permanent syndrome for us? You know, there, there comes a time, I think, in every bad moment in American history where there's a swing in the other direction. The 1924 immigration law, which is the one that effectively kept Southern and Eastern European immigrants out of America for 40 years, it falls apart in 1965 at the same time that the civil rights movement was happening. Uh, Coming out of World War II and beginning to understand the country better and and the black movement, the the black quest for rights becoming visible, that informed something, a, a, a larger expression of That same moment in 1965, the passage of the Heart Seller Act, which uh, revoked the 1924 law, opened the gates to an incredible immigration that we have benefited from enormously. Now I'm not suggesting that anybody who wants to come should be allowed in. I think that you know you could have what we had for many years was not a quota, but a quotient, a limit on the number of people, and it was a lottery. Anybody could come, anybody could try. And I think that we're going to get back to that. We're going to get back to that when this president is no longer president. And let's not talk about politics.
1: <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean to bring up the politics. I just want to explain no, how you No, I'm trying to go with you on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I should explain how your book moved me. Um, we're going to let you uh, John Dorsey, who you can see, he was an early immigrant to the United States because he's got he wears that gray haired wig of his great grandfather, you know, see the picture behind him, he's one of those, you know, anyway, we can talk about that later. We'll talk about that offline, but, but I wanna to get to Prohibition for one second, and then we're gonna open up to John Darcy and questions from our audience. Um, the Prohibition book was also phenomenal. Uh, and when I, when I finished the book, the only thing I could think of is hypocrisy. You know, I could only, that's the only thing I could think of, you know, I could close the book, I said, wow, we are sanctimonious and righteous, but yet on a Saturday night, we're all living it up. It was very hypocritical. So number one, uh, what's your favorite drink? You mentioned you
2: were having a drink at, uh, at uh, the restaurant there before you wrote the oh, Senator. What's your I, favorite I'm drink? I'm a Brown Goods, I'm a bourbon drinker in the winter, and I'm a gin drinker in the summer, and I can drink my gin in any number of different combinations. Okay, there you
1: go. Okay, so I I like a good Negroni. I like a gin and tonic. I'm a gin drinker myself. uh, And uh, but I've also discovered Tito's vodka as I've gotten older, which uh, is a good one with lemonade. But but here we are in a country uh, that was so Christian ideologically based that we literally got a constitutional amendment passed to ban drinking. Yet we
2: were all drinking. So go ahead. Yeah, think think of it this way. I turn it over to Dorsey. (laughs) <laughs> just, just to that, Anthony, uh, there are only two things in the Constitution that limit the rights of individuals. Uh, the Constitution limits the powers of government, the two things that limit it. And the 13th Amendment says you can't own slaves, and the 18th Amendment says you can't have a glass of beer. The notion of equating these two things alone shows you how insane it was.
1: Well, how did, how did it it reversed, the so
2: Roosevelt, right? Franklin Roosevelt, basically, right? Well, it, it, it got reversed because there was a sudden need for tax revenue. In 1929, the crash comes in. There's no uh, income tax collections dropped by 30%. There are no capital gains uh, collections at all between 1929 and 1932. Somebody says, where can we get the money to run the government? Well, geez, remember that alcohol tax? And like so many things in American life, right. uh, money turned it around. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I just want to comment. In the age of global warming, it would have been very hard to drive those trucks over the Great Lakes from Canada to bring all that pollution. <laughs> exactly, it would have been yeah. on motorboats this time. I got to turn it over to John. You have great audience participation here. Lots of questions, Daniel. I could talk to you for hours, but I I got to turn it over to George Washington. So go ahead, George. Go Ahead.
0: All right. Don't hold it against me. But, well, um,
2: before we have, don't hold it against you, John. I mean, if you do go back that far, it's worth pointing out that the term that people whose families had been here since the 18th century used to describe themselves in this period was Native Americans.
1: All right, well, there you, it, go. you know, I, I now, I mean, go. I actually don't go back that far. You that just, on our next salt talk, Okrin. Oh, Thank you for bringing that up.
0: Thank. It's all just part of Anthony's shtick. My family immigrated from, uh, from Scotland in the 1800s, actually to New York, but I was raised in North Carolina. So I'm really just a redneck uh, that Anthony likes to call a wasp. But okay. uh, anyways, getting back on topic. Um, you talk in the book a little bit, and I've seen some interviews that you did uh, about the guarded gate, where you talk about science and about how science was used as a pretense for creating these immigration quotas. Science was was a pretense for you know the Holocaust um, and things of that nature. But today, you know, we use science as an argument for addressing things like climate change or related to the pandemic and public health issues, and so. Fundamentally, you know, how do we make sure that science doesn't get politicized and uh, you know, protect the sanctity of science in our society?
2: Um, I don't know how to do that. Um, if we knew how to do that, we wouldn't be in this terrible dilemma right now with 170,000 Americans needlessly dead. Um, the ability to denigrate science, uh, it, it, it shocks me. I mean, certainly for the last 50 years, this country has respected science, and I think it goes back further than that. Now, in connection to what I'm writing about in my book, sometimes science turns out not to be science, and this was a very difficult thing for me to conjure with. Science only knows what it knows today; it doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It can imagine, it can can project, but it doesn't know for sure. And until things can be disproven, you know, uh, then sometimes people aren't going to accept them as real. Nothing I can do about it.
0: All right. So it's it's sort of a fundamental challenge that we have to be rigorous about, you know, addressing the truth behind science and, and not allow yep. it to be distorted. Exactly. We have a question from uh, one of our viewers talking about, you know, you, the guarded gate uh, refers to immigration from the outside. But there's also internal barriers that act sort of as guarded gates within our society to immigrants, you know, restrictive zoning policies, nimbyism in general by both liberal and conservative politicians. Um, so. How do we address those types of internal guarded gates with our society? Do you have a prescription for it? Or how do you observe those phenomenons that have existed, you know, ranging back from the beginning of the 20th century through today?
2: What I can do is recommend two books that address this directly. The first uh, by Richard Rothstein is called The Color of Law. It was published several years ago, and it describes how by law, by acts of Congress and by presidential action, Black Americans were kept ghettoized by policy, by policy, and they are continuing to be victimized by what happened to their parents and their grandparents. Uh, And uh, it's required reading, I think. Equally, a brand new book about to come out called One Billion Americans by the exceptionally astute uh, uh, political commentator, Matthew Iglesias, points out how we can get past this. And one of his ways of getting past it is to expand the society. We need more Americans. We need more Americans mixing with other Americans. And then he goes into a very persuasive argument about why that would be very uh, powerful in improving the lives of all Americans, uh, uh, both those here today and those we're going to create soon.
0: So what's the next wave uh, of people that we look down on, right? So we talked about the evolution of whiteness. It didn't used to include, whiteness didn't used to include Jews and Italians. And now we look down on Central American immigrants that are becoming so uh, ingrained in our society they'll, they'll eventually be such an important part of the electorate that they can't be ignored So what, what's the next evolution of of that whiteness and, and how we discriminate against people?
2: Well, my, my, my fear is that it will be directed toward Africa uh, Both both Saharan and sub-Saharan Africa um, You know, there was a quite a substantial immigration from Africa after the law was changed in 1965 and we see you know the scientists and the football players and the politicians uh who came about came out of that and and you know have really added to american life um but it wasn't attended to much by the haters uh during that period and i think that if we can get past this period we hope we can get past that one too but that would be the obvious those would be the people who would obviously be the next targets i think
0: All right So I want to pivot a little bit uh, to your time in journalism. So you served as the first public editor of the New York Times, a role in which you were asked to, uh, without guidance from the paper itself or without a fear or favor, critique the paper's work. It's a role that we're familiar with now, but you were a pioneer sort of in that space. How did you critique uh, the New York Times performance during that period as the public editor? And how would you critique the modern media in the way it's covered uh, the Trump presidency?
2: Well, you got a few hours, and I could go into great detail on it. Uh, I learned an an important thing, John, when I was the public editor during the 2004 election. Um, I got a call one day from a reader, I guess it was an email from a reader who said, it just, uh, it's clear to you, to me, the reader said, that the Times is in the pocket for George Bush, because there's a picture of George Bush, color, page one, three columns above the fold, looking happy and strong and confident. And that's clearly you're favoring that, uh, you know, that candidate. And I asked the reader, who was on the front page of yesterday's paper? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, it was John Terry in an equally happy uh, and, and positive context. Uh, this has only gotten worse. We have too, too many of us are seeking out the news that conforms to our view of the world. If it's conforms to the view of our world, it's true. If it does not, it's either fake news or, or, or it's biased in some other fashion. And this has only gotten worse. It's gotten worse in every uh, aspect of, uh, of media uh, as we get fractionated. You know, liberals watch MSNBC, conservatives watch, watch Fox, um, you know, who reads the Times, who reads the journal. We don't have a common set of information. We aren't hearing the same things. And how you can build a society when we don't have that in common is kind of hard to imagine.
1: Well, we're arguing about the facts now, right? So we can't even have a proper debate because we're, we're getting different facts from different channels. Or yeah,
0: different so-called different facts. facts. You know, there was a time like eugenics. It's like, when, eugenics. It, it, it's, it's yeah, like yeah, the point you right, made about eugenics. Yeah. You know?
2: There was a time that if Walter Cronkite said something, America thought, oh, yeah, that's probably true there were three national sources of news, the three network news shows. Now, let me find the news that make, that pleases me the most. And that's not news. That's propaganda.
0: So how how does the New York Times, for example, and they've been criticized in certain corners of the media for covering some of Trump's shenanigans ad nauseum and giving the attention to him that he seeks by some of the, you know, the behavior that he engages in. You know, he pardon Susan B. Anthony to distract from things that are going on at the Democratic National Convention or to distract from the release of the Senate Intelligence Committee report. How do you balance your reporting on the president? You know, he's the president of the United States, things that he does and says probably deserve some level of attention, but how do you make sure that the right stories get covered?
2: Well, there's no way of, of, of making certain that the right stories are getting get covered, but as you said, John, you have to cover what the president does or even what the leading candidate of one of our two major political parties does. But back in the 2016 campaign, uh, Trump was saying outrageous things and he was saying to these huge crowds and people were complaining, why are you giving him so much television time? Well, he's a candidate for president. We can't help that. He's making the agenda. Now, it's incumbent upon the news media to call him on falsehoods and to show that there's another side to the story. Um, but I do think that, uh, we can all get carried away in one direction or the other.
0: I want to switch gears once again, like I talked about in the intro, you're a man of eclectic taste. You started out as a baseball writer before, uh, writing these fascinating books about a variety of different topics, but you, as Anthony mentioned, were the father of the rotisserie scoring system for fantasy baseball. How did you develop that love of the game and, and how did you come up with that rotisserie uh, style of scoring for fantasy baseball. I asked you about your fantasy team before we went live, and you said you you quit that about ten years ago. About ten years after you quit smoking. So what what's the, the genesis of your uh, fantasy baseball fascination? how did you come up with all that? At,
2: at times, I thought fantasy baseball was more dangerous to my health than smoking was. <laughs> uh, certainly, it was to my pocketbook. I was terrible at it. Um, you know, the idea came to me in 1980, and it was really it was the first real fantasy sport at all uh rotisserie was you know this shows how stupid we were uh rotisserie was our trademark name and we thought people would always call it rotisserie you know, or if they didn't they'd have to pay us a royalty uh, for whatever they produced under that name and then of course somebody came up with the generic name fantasy and we disappeared but that's fine it just came to me because it was the winter of 1979 1980 and i was missing baseball i was simply bereft of baseball and i started thinking about you know Getting engaged in the game, missing the back scores, and boom! Then we were my my colleagues and I. We were in the Times. We were on the uh, Today Show. We were on um, um, CBS Morning News. Word, word got out, and this is why I'm a fabulously wealthy man today. Because everybody who plays the game pays me for the privilege.
1: Uh, do you remember Stratomatic Baseball?
2: I, I I played it endlessly as a kid.
1: Yeah, so the uh, the legendary Hal Richman uh, is a native of the town I grew up in. And so at the age of seven, I learned Stratomatic baseball. And uh, in 2008, I bought a piece of the company. So it was obviously the pre precursor to, yeah, I don't a- a- a-
2: absolutely. I'm
1: a big baseball aficionado. So I own a piece of the Mets, I own a piece of Stratomatic baseball. Uh, do you well, ever- the Stratomatic
2: baseball, the piece of Stratomatic baseball is more valuable than a piece of the Mets.
1: Uh, Actually, no. I mean, think about it. There's a couple of hedge fund managers that are bidding for the Mets, not Stratomatic Baseball. But (laughs) You know what I'm saying. I I do. I do. In terms of the literary significance of Stratomatic Baseball, I tell children, learn Stratomatic Baseball. You can manage money because there's a lot of statistical insight in that that game. Um, I I, I don't mean to interrupt you, John, but I have to ask this question. So
2: uh, baseball has a future, Daniel? I sure hope so. Uh, it's so hard watching now. I can't watch because seeing the empty seats, it just, it's not right. There's something, it, it's just off. I can listen on the radio and even accept the fake fan noise because it is a familiar thing that's coming to me over the airwaves. And, and, and you know, the sound of the ball and the bat and the, the crowd noise, the announcer, if you connect to baseball, you, know, you want this in your life forever. Uh, and I'm just hopeful that uh, you know future generations will feel the way that you and I do. Are we going to seven innings? Oh, I, I hope not. I mean, there are some things in this clearly. One of the things that is being, uh, um, is that's sneaking into baseball under the guise of, of COVID protection is the end of the, the, uh, of pitchers batting in the Mar- in the national league. Uh, this is how they're getting rid of the DH. They're also getting rid of uh Extra inning baseball, as we know, with this new you know man on second when the yeah, inning starts. Yeah, that's. Uh, there are going to be a lot of change. You know, whenever you have a crisis, and this is true, I'm sure in your world in, in finance and politics, whenever there's a crisis, other things change because attention is elsewhere, and that's going to happen with baseball. Yeah. Well, we had the crisis that
1: led to us uh, being able to drink alcohol again. So here, here yeah, here's, there you go. Right?
0: Exactly.
2: Go ahead, John. I didn't
1: mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Feeling my thunder here, Anthony. Come yeah, on. Sorry about that. Go ahead. So we we have one more uh, question from the audience, and then we'll let you go, Daniel, back to your hammock there in beautiful Cape Cod. Um, How come there's been no mention of your hit play, Old Jews Telling Jokes? And is there some value uh, to the connection to humor when dealing with ideas around the acceptance of immigrants and the problems in our society?
2: Uh, My colleague, Peter Gethers, uh, with whom I wrote Old Jews Telling Jokes, uh, Peter and I uh, learned while working on this show, which was a hit, this is the way that everybody deals with with tragedy and sorrow. Make fun of it. It's the only way of making it tolerable. And so very quickly, one quick old Jew joke about Mr. Uh, Grossman uh, goes to the doctor and he's a very old man. He said, Doctor, doctor, I can't, I can't, I can't pee. And, and he says, Well, how old are you, Mr. Grossman? I said, uh, I'm 94. And says, ah, you've peed enough. And that's <laughs> how that's how he dealt with it. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, it was a pleasure having you on, Daniel. Uh, you know, Anthony is a, a big fan of your books. I need to read all of them still, uh, but I started in preparation for this talk, but it's been fascinating to hear your perspectives. And and uh, Anthony, if you have any final word uh, for Daniel. Oh, before listen, we let him go. I,
1: I, I just think that the, you're, you're, you're identifying a strand, as is uh, uh, Lapore in her book, uh, Jill in her book, about America that we need to all understand and we have to face that reality and work towards progressing and improving America. And so very very grateful for you to writing those books. Uh, before we do let you go though, are you writing something now that you can discuss, Daniel or not?
2: Um I'm I'm thinking about something. It's a story of old New York about what a family that was the second uh largest landowning family in New York after the disasters and nobody's ever heard of them. And it's a story of who they were and why they disappeared. And it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. All right. Well, I look forward to reading that as well. Stay uh, tuned. And I, I, I
1: wish you a great rest of the summer and let's stay in touch, please. And hopefully when we get back to our live events, Daniel, we can have you come to one of our live events. I think you would enjoy it.
2: Thank you very much, Anthony. This was a pleasure. And thank you, John, too.
0: Thank you, right. you, Daniel.